You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. An amazing story from one of our Air Force veterans who had a very interesting mission at the beginning of the war on terror. Stay tuned for that. Need to remind you guys to hit the Apple Podcast reviews. Listen, this is this simple, guys. All you have to do is go on your phone to the podcast page, to the homepage, scroll down to the bottom, and all you got to do is tap five stars. You give us a quick rating. It says write a review. It doesn't have to be long. It's that simple. We really need to up these Apple reviews to continue to grow this thing. We want to crack the top 100 Apple podcasts. We can only do it with your help. So again, please leave a rating and a review. It's as simple as doing it on your phone. You don't have to be in front of your computer to do it. If you're not consuming on Apple podcasts, continue to leave positive reviews, whatever platform that you guys are listening to the show on. Remind you guys about our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow us at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll take you to Amazon. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping, and this also works on your smartphone. It'll actually divert you right to the Amazon app. So if all your credit card information, everything is saved, it's an easy transition. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate some of that percentage back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. And don't forget about our new partnership with Killcliff. Very excited to work with an amazing company, one of the fastest growing companies in America, and certainly a veteran-owned company that's going to help elevate the Hazard Ground to new heights. We're going to grow into a video component. We're going to grow into more content. Just I'm really excited about this partnership. So we'll continue to provide you guys with more information as we can going forward. And as always, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground community. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground podcast is a retired Air Force colonel who has over 20 years of service on active duty. He is a command pilot with over 3,000 flying hours and more than 600 unmanned aerial vehicle hours as well. He has multiple deployments around the world, including flying predators in Afghanistan in the fall of 2001. And maybe most importantly, he was suggested to us by his son. He is Colonel Retired Joseph Spoon Rizzuto, joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Colonel, sir, welcome and thank you for being here. Hey, Mark, thanks for having me. And, and as you pointed out, nominated by my son. So, you know, my biggest fan in the world and uh, had to give you a call. Plus, I love your show. Kudos to you. You're doing great work, man. Well, thank you, sir. We appreciate that. And we always do love hearing from the audience and them giving us suggestions, but it's even more special when it's a family member. Uh, so we certainly appreciate you taking the time out uh, to join us and, and a long, distinguished career, uh, both as a pilot and a leader. Uh, in fact, one of your final destinations was at the U- United States Air Force Profession of Arms Center of Excellence. And so uh, you, you certainly went out with a, with a high-level high level profile position, uh, but we always start back at the beginning and tell us how and why you got in the Air Force. Yes. Yeah, so, I, you know, I think growing up, uh, there was really a tremendous sense of patriotism, as I, I would think. Uh, you know, I just knew I always wanted to be in the military. I wanted to serve. My brother, when I was at a pretty impressionable age, you know, about 12, 13 years old, my brother was in the Marines, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and I knew that I just wanted to serve. But I also knew I wanted to fly. And I you know, tell you what, if I had had the vision to make the Marine cut, I would have gone Marine Corps and, and been a pilot for them. Um, but I wasn't 2020. Uh, so 
decided to go the academy routes and a friend of ours at the at the air force academy at the time told me he said yeah it's 2020 to get in but once you're in it goes to 2070 don't worry about it you'll be uh pilot qualified uh so i applied to all three of them um got into all three academies and oh, west wow. point called me west point called me first and i was really tempted you know that first person that first group that gives you the nod you know yeah. kind of as a young kid you feel it's really tempted to go to west point but i wanted to fly uh, so I went off to Colorado Springs in uh, in June of 88. And I tell you what, a year later, uh, I had my first chance to fly at the Air Force Academy Flight Gliders. And I knew I'd made the right decision because I was hooked at that point. I was in love with flying airplanes. Now, did you apply to any like regular schools or were you just all in on the military academy route? No, I'd applied to some. I, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. I applied to some schools up in the Northwest. I'd also applied for... Um, some ROTC scholarships and in fact received a Marine Corps ROTC scholarship as well. In which case then schools I'd never applied to started calling me, right? Cause they <laughs> wanted some of that government money. Right. Um, but, but I knew if I wanted to fly, uh, that the Academy gave me the best chance at doing that. What was um, the, al- sure- what was the allure for a pilot? I, I should ask. Was there anything as a kid? I mean, did you just like planes or. I don't know. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of a flying experience as a kid. My uncle owned an airplane. They used to talk about it, but I never really went up with them. Um, I, I don't. I, I couldn't tell you. I, I could tell you it existed long before Top Gun came out. I yeah, I was going to say that's usually uh, people a little bit younger than you always use Top Gun as the. Uh, but everybody forgets those are quote naval aviators. You know, it's, 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 <laughs> well, there's true. a little bit of a difference. Um, and, and you didn't. You didn't feel like the West Point, you know, Army aviation was was the way. Eh? It was always it was Air Force at the top. Yeah, I was Air Force at the top. No, Army, Army aviation would have been um, would have been cool, and or you know, go the Army route and go what like a lot of your uh, your guests go that the Special Forces route. That all had an allure to me. I was a pretty athletic, you know, three sport um, young man, and was was thinking all of that. But the idea of getting in an afterburner aircraft and, and seeing if I could make it go straight up in the air. Uh, was pretty cool to me. And uh, that's definitely where I wanted to go. You know, my wife actually has, my mom had sent us some stuff. My wife has a book I wrote in first grade, I think called The Boy Who Could Fly, you know? And so she just holds it up as, this is what apparently you wanted to do your whole life. And I'm like, yeah, apparently so. Uh, So um, that was the path I wanted for sure. So you get to the Air Force Academy. Uh, Did you have any preconceived notions of what it was going to be like any expectations you thought going in that may have been different what was that experience uh you know so well first of all like some of your uh, other guests have said you know it, it never goes smooth does it you know if you could get through the application process to those places uh you can get in right and i didn't uh in fact i came back non-medically qualified for commission because of mistake in paperwork and you know it took me two or three months to fix that and that's when west point called me and said, yeah, come on, we'll take you. Um, but once I was there, you know, family friends that, that were attending there um, walked me through a lot of stuff, and it, it pretty much met, met my expectations. I really think I enjoyed and thrived on that military lifestyle. You know, I, I, like I said, I always wanted to be in. I always wanted to serve. And so, you know, basic training was hard. I think I lost 30 pounds, you know, while I was there. Um, got down from, from baseball fighting weight back down to my wrestling fighting weight, you know? And, um, so that, those aspects were, were tough, uh, but I enjoyed it. And then 
And then over the next four years, I, I was fortunate enough there to get picked to be in a program they have where they take cadets to fly gliders and become um, instructors in gliders. And so, you know, you're sitting in the backseat of this glider with another cadet up front, you know, so two 19-year-old, 20-year-old know-nothings, and we're going to drag you up the, over the, the mountains of Colorado and turn you loose and see if you can make it back and land. And, and at the same time, trying to teach that person up front how to do it. And I tell you, that was the greatest program in the world. I was absolutely thrilled and hooked at that point um, by that program. And so some of those expectations exceeded what I thought I would get at the academy. I didn't think I'd get as much flying there as I ended up getting. Now, when you graduate, uh, I, and forgive my ignorance, because like I know about you know the Naval Academy and I know about West Point. I don't know that much about the Air Force Academy. When you graduate, I mean, that process of, of choosing an aircraft and everything else, how does that go? So um, when you graduate there, uh, no advantage over uh, anybody else that gets a pilot training slot uh, through any of the other commissioning sources, ROTC or uh, OCS. So you got to go off to pilot training. Um, first, you have to pass a, a, a screening program at the academy, or at least when I went through, you did. Um, if you couldn't solo an airplane in 10 or 12 lessons, then you didn't get to go to pilot training. Then you go off to pilot training and you join um, everybody from all the different sources that come together at pilot training. Uh, and when I went through, you would track all the way through to your second airplane about 10 months into your 12-month program before you pick your airplane. So, so okay. Did you know which ones you wanted to fly through your experience at the, at the academy? Uh, oh, yeah. And I knew uh, – and from, from um, you know, talking to other guys, I knew I wanted to fly a fighter. Um, and I really wanted to fly an F-15. It was the hottest everything out there at the time. Um, that's what I wanted to do. I, I picked uh, pilot training at uh, Shepard Air Force Base, which is actually the Euro-NATO joint jet pilot training. So it's focused on fighter pilots, where the other bases would train both fighter pilots in transport and bomber pilots. This one was all about fighter pilots. You, you get to do stuff the other bases don't get to do, lead four ships as a solo student, you know, it's just the hottest training in the world. I was going fighters. I knew I wanted a fighter. And when I finished, I got to fly a C-130. So, and, and I tell you what, you want to talk about um, heart-wrenching, heartbreaking, um, and the probably one of the best assignments I ever had. Really? Why is and, that? Well I, well, I got a C-130 in Alaska. So I went up to Anchorage, Alaska to fly C-130s. And... Um, I think you could fly uh, a Cessna in Alaska and it'd be the most beautiful place in the world. And then I really liked the mission of the 130. And we were going into uh, landing on sides of hills, mountains, uh, dirt strips, gravel on the uh, up on the Bering Sea uh, to you know to take supplies to the old you know dew sites, the old radar sites. Um, and then we were throwing. The other thing we were doing is we were flying around at 300 feet, popping up to 800 and throwing paratroopers out the back right there at Fort mm -hmm. Richardson um, and just an absolute amazing um, assignment. And then uh, just when, you know, you got bored in Alaska about every six months, we go spend 30 or 45 days flying around uh, the Pacific, Japan, uh, out to Guam, a couple of, or one time down to Papua New Guinea, up into Korea a lot. Um, and so really got to see that part of the world. You know, um, at one point I was a 26 year old kid, uh, in charge of an airplane flying out over the Pacific, you know, a crew of five or six and passengers and stuff on board. And I, it was just more than I think you could ask for. And, and an experience I don't think I ever would have had 
uh, if I had got a fighter. Initially, looking back on it, you know, I think if I had gone straight to fighters, I would have been one of those stereotypical uh, flaming assholes, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I was Hot shot, young pilot who knows oh, everything, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, I came out of the academy full of myself um, and full of uh, full of who I thought I was. Um, and then I went up to fly C-130s. And, um, and, you know, I learned what flying was really all about. And the other thing, you know, two other big things there. Uh, the first is I met my wife up there in Alaska. She was from Louisiana, but had moved up there to go to school, which is really remarkable since it's eight to one, eight guys to every gal in Alaska. And I met my yeah. wife there. So, yeah. And, know, and who leaves Louisiana to go to Alaska on purpose? <laughs> well, my wife. <laughs> I said, I didn't send up a red flag right away. No. <laughs> and you know what? It was actually good because in the, you know, we're building a house right now. It's our 15th home in, you know, 22 years of marriage. And um, so she had that nomad blood, which was good. Otherwise, I don't think she'd still be with me, right? Um, and she went off from Alaska to Australia and did a semester there. So, you know, just a great gal who's put up with a ton of crap, quite frankly, um, and, and still long, still with me along the way. Um, the other thing that uh, that I took away from my time in Alaska was, you know, we had other guys that had gone through fighter training as well that showed up and they were just so bitter and so disgruntled that they didn't get a fighter that they just pretty much sat on their hands and they didn't do a whole lot. And that was, I decided I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't the assignment I wanted, but it's the assignment I got and I worked my ass off at it. And, and because of that, that was noted when the Air Force decided they needed to bring about 150 guys back to fighters that they had trained previously they held boards for that. And some of the guys that applied for the board, you know, they wouldn't even submit their name because, you know, they couldn't be trusted to do the job they were doing. They weren't going to send them off to do something else. And so I, I, I just kind of learned, man, you better work hard where you're working, you know, bloom where you're planted. If you ever, ever heard that, mm -hmm. that beauty. And, uh, and it, that served me well. And it was going to, it ends up serving me really well, you know, a few years later when I find myself, um, in a UAV assignment that I really, really, really didn't want. Right. So, um, but that became a major influencer in my entire career and therefore my life, quite frankly. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, when you watching paratroopers go out the, uh, the back door of a C-130 or out the, the side, are you looking down at the window going, look at these maniacs? <laughs> no, when I'm up front, no, but boy, every once in a while I'd ride back and watch it. And I'm just like, and they're, you know, they're shuffling along and these are, arctic equipped paratroopers right so when they fall over it takes two people to stand them back up right just loading on the airplane and i'm like wow i, I just don't think I, i'm pretty glad i didn't go to that west point and go that whole <laughs> whole airborne route right i'd rather be in wow. full control of the plane than jumping out of it right jumping out yeah and it would be many many years later before i jumped out of an airplane so oh wow so you actually did do it i did uh uh 20 years after i left the academy when i was back there I jumped with uh, up at the academy when I was working on staff there, and I did my five free fall jumps and got my wings. And they asked me if I wanted to continue jumping, and I said, "Absolutely not." <laughs> Thank you for the experience. I'll, I'll take a seat up front. I'll go back to flying you guys. Right there you now. go. Yeah, when, when given the choice, I'll, I'll pick the pilot seat. So it makes oh, a ton yeah. of sense. All right. So you start off early in your career, and you get to C one thirty. Now, uh, what are we talk about five, maybe six years into your career, you move on to the A ten. Uh, now, what yes. prompted this? I know you said you wanted to do fighters, but how does that process work and what sort of prompted the decision? So very rare process uh, in the Air Force uh, for you to change tracks. Um, from Why is cargo. it so rare? 
Well, because of the training, uh, and especially today where they have a, a tracked pilot training. So um, in t- today everyone flies a T-6, and then they track, and the fighter guys go to a T-38, the bomber guys go to a T-38, and the cargo guys go to a T-1. When I went through, we all went to T-38, and that was the one requirement that you had to have to be able to come back to fighters, but very rare to do that. Plus, you know, the, the cargo guys don't want to give up their guys. You know, I don't know how hard it is in the army to, to change from infantry to armor or, or from armor to artillery, you know, to change branches. Nah, not, not terribly difficult. Just got to go to one course and you're done. Yeah. So for us, uh, not something that they typically like to do. Additionally, uh, you know, the courses might last four five, six, eight months. Um, so, you know, uh, so after you finish pilot training, tw- 12 months of pilot training, uh, C-130 school was four and a half months. When I get picked up for uh, A-10 training, uh, A-10 school was five and a half months, plus there was another two months of fighter training, plus another two or three, about two months of different survival schools that, because it's an ejection seat airplane, the survival school is different than what I did with the with the cargo airplane. So, so the whole process takes me, um, 10 months to do, gotcha. but, uh, the air force said, yeah, we screwed up. We, you know, we drew down after desert storm. We cut the number of fighter pilots we thought we needed, but we overshot and we need to bring some of you guys back. And so for about three years, they brought, uh, groups back in 25, a batch about every six months. Um, and, uh, um, I, the only airplane that I, I was doing well in the 130, I was having a good time. Um, I was pretty well respected, I think, you know, not to toot my own horn, but the only guys that looked like they had more fun than us flying around when we do exercises with other folks were the A-10s. And I'm like, Hey, can I try an A-10? Um, and if I was fortunate enough to get it, um, you know, and it's, this is one of those timing things. And, and in my life, I'm, I'm a pretty religious, spiritual guy. I see God's hand in my life. Um, you know, I did not want to see one thirty. I did not want to go to Alaska, but that's where I went a month after I proposed to my wife, I got orders or got told I was selected to go to A-10s. So it's like, he had this detour for me and now he's going to send me to, to what I've been asking for all along. So as you start this career as an A-10 pilot, when you do it, it's pre-9-11. So what is that experience like? Because clearly there's not a fight for the fighter pilot. Right. So, uh, you know, first of all, it's interesting that they, you know, I was one of the first groups to go through and they're like, what do you mean you've been flying C-130s and now you're coming to us? What are we supposed to do with you? You know, I'm four or five years senior to my peers, right? Um, So some of that was just interesting to figure out how to do all that. Uh, you know, in the A-10 world, we hadn't left Kuwait. So they were there in 91. And when I joined the squadron in 98, and again, when I went to Kuwait in in January, February of 01, the A-10s had been there the entire time. They had never left. Um, they were sitting on the border of Iraq. They were there mostly to provide um, search and rescue and search and rescue support if something somebody were to go down in the no-fly zones. Um, but for 10 years, the A-10s had never left uh, the AOR. Wow. So, so you know, that, that was good that it gave us a mission to focus on. It was bad because we, you know, we became, became a little complacent in what we thought we knew where the enemy was. Um, but, you know, we had some pretty forward-thinking, we had some pretty forward-thinking uh, leaders at the squadron level, right, lieutenant colonel level, 
talking to us about, you know, you never know, we could end up in Afghanistan, we could end up in Iran, we could end up in Syria, we could end up in Africa. And so we tried to, you know, stay on top of our game, um, uh, thinking about and developing ideas for those places. But, uh, but really, you know, the, the game was uh, every two years you'd rotate into Kuwait uh, for anywhere from three to six months. So where are you on 9-11? So, uh, so I'm in Kuwait, uh, prior in early 01, I'm in Kuwait and, uh, and they'd offered me an assignment. They said, if you volunteer to go to Korea for one year without your family, we'll send you to Davis Monthan in Tucson as a follow on. And I looked at my wife and my brand new three month old son who nominated me for this. And I went back to him and said, you know, I can't volunteer for that. Um, and they're like, what do you mean you can't? And I'm like, I won't volunteer for that. And they're like, well, we could send you. And I'm like, fine. Then I can go home and tell my wife you're sending me, but I'm not going to go home and tell her flying the A-10 is more important than her. Uh, so I'm not going to volunteer for it. And they're like, fine. So so they came back and they go, well, here's your assignment then. And they hand me an assignment, and it's to uh, this very little-known program called Predators uh, flying uh, unmanned aerial vehicles in Creech, Nevada, just outside of Las Vegas. And I looked at them and said, hey, can I go to Korea? <laughs> and they said, no, I don't think so. And, and so uh, uh, May of 01, so this is pre-9-11. This is before predators are a big deal. Um, I'm dragging my feet all the way across from North Carolina at Pope, where I was flying the A-10s, um, all the way out to uh, to Vegas and Creech. Wasn't he, it, was, it wasn't even Creech Air Force Base at that time. It was Indian Springs um, Auxiliary Airfield, Air Force Auxiliary Airfield. Uh, so on 9-11, I'm still in school. I'm still in class. Uh, we had a, a mission, a training mission that day, and so we had a briefing early. Um, and I was second to go, so, you know, I'm hanging out, just kind of uh, hanging out in the classroom, and someone comes and gets me and says, hey, man, you got to come see the TV. And we turn on the TV and watching the building smoke, watch the second plane hit. Um, and then it's my turn to get in the box, the trailer, to control the airplane, we do. Um, a very strange environment. Every other airplane in Nevada is on the ground, and they push us to the very southern edge of the um, Nellis airspace, the the restricted airspace up there. And we're we're f- flying patrols, watching the the um, the fence line of Nellis because no one knows what's going on, right? No one knows what's mm-hmm. coming next. Um, and we do that for about an hour, and then they tell us to just bring it home and land. Um, so that was, like I said, that was nine eleven. Um, and I was gone before Thanksgiving um, in 01. I was deployed. Gone to where? Uh, we went over to, at that time, we weren't flying them via split ops. We had to deploy with them. And so I went to Jacobabad, Pakistan. Okay. Uh, um, which, not to offend any of my Pakistani friends or any of your Pakistani listeners, but has to be one of the nastiest places on earth. Um, and in fact, I've met some some Pakistanis later in life at schools, and they asked, you know, I told them I got a chance to, work in their country for about four months. And they said, where? And I told them Jacobabad. And they're like, why did we put you there? It's, it's just, it is nasty. It's in a river valley. Uh, we're over there in winter. They don't have trees. They burn bricks of manure like they do in a lot of places around the world. And it's just, it's just really a, a kind of a nasty place. And what was the um, intent in being there, sort of mission set wise? So we flew out of there uh, up uh, across the border. They had a, a corridor right. for us um, and then into Afghanistan. Um, and we flew them all over Afghanistan. Uh, when we started out, you know, the, the, the UAV world was was really interesting. Uh, let me start with a slight story. While I was still in training, I was the first A-10 guy they had come to Predators, uh, the first fully trained airborne forward air controller. 
uh, AFAC or JTAC or however you want to call right. them. I'm, I'm familiar with JTAC, mechanism. yeah. That's that's the Army way we use it, I think. Yeah, so a JTAC is a joint terminal air controller, right? And it could be on the ground or in the air. And so for a guy like me in the air, I had to go through the same schools as the ground guys and then some airborne training on how to do that. And I'm the first one they have that in Predator. And they're like, look, we've been contemplating for quite a while that we could control other airplanes from the Predator. We can find targets. We can develop nine lines. We can call in strikes. And we can we can run the fight, and uh, so uh, you know I worked with the guys on developing that program while I was still a student. Um, finished up, took my check ride, immediately went through that program, uh, became an instructor in that program because it was all same stuff I learned from A10s, right? Um, and then when I deployed, it was my job to to spin everybody that I deployed with up. There's only six of us to get us all trained up on how to do this new mission. Um, and you'd be surprised what changed the world of, of the UAV. It's not the weapons. It's not the lasers. It was a simple radio, right? So we flew for about three weeks out of Pakistan, um, and we would go look at targets for, for, the, uh, for the S2, right, or the J2, for the intel guys. We do pre- and post-strike analysis, um, and we couldn't talk to anybody. The radio on the airplane didn't work. Uh, the only radio we had was on our control trailer, and so we had about an 80-mile range. From Jacobabad, the targets were about 300 miles from where we were sitting. Um, and then one day they came to us and said, hey, the radio works. Why don't you give it a try? So we checked in with AWACS, and they said, great. And then nobody talked to us the rest of the night, and we flew around and, <laughs> and watched. And, so, and we watched some We watched some, you know, pretty high-vis stuff. We watched, uh, you know, the night the first American was killed there in the prison. Um, we flew over Camp Rhino and we would do a uh, uh, security search for Camp Rhino, you know, so we were watching some, you know, some pretty major stuff, um, but we really weren't in the fight. Uh, well, the second night, the radio, we went to work with the radio and they told us, go to these coordinates, check in with this guy um, and uh, uh, see what help he needs. So we flew to the coordinates. They're going into Kandahar that night and um, trying to take the city of Kandahar in the airfield. And we checked in with the guy, and he asked us to come up on secure radio, and we said, we can't do that. He said, well, authenticate, and we don't have any authentication tables because no one thought about that when getting our radios to work. And then he won't talk to us, you know. So we're watching him, and we're looking right at him um, on the IR infrared, and he won't talk to us. And so we call the guys back up at the CAOC, and we watch him reach into his bag, pull out a satellite phone, fold it back up, put it in his bag, and he comes back on the radio. And he said, they told me to work with you. And we're like, okay, what do you need? He goes, what are you? And we're like, well, we're a, we're a MQ-1 predator. What, what can we do for you? And he's like, I don't know. What can you do for me? And we're like, what's going on? He's like, well, we're getting mortared from the north. It's probably eight clicks out and we can't find them. And we said, okay, we'll go find them. So we go over, we find the mortars, we, we fix them. We, we spin up uh, two nine lines, fairly accurate coordinates. We, um, we don't have a laser at the time, but we get – you know, pretty, we think probably within 10 meters and we call a JTAC back and we say, Hey, we've got the mortars. Here's the nine line for them. And he says, I'm sending you two F 16s. Take them out. We're like, look, we can't do final control. And he's like, have them call me when they're ready. Uh, I'll give them a five minute window. Uh, and it took a little while to get the, the 16s talked on. They were guard 16s. They didn't have an IR pod. They only had MVGs. Eventually they dropped a can of CVU on the coordinates. And then we adjusted fire onto the second, mortar from from the impact of the coordinates of the first cbu took out the two mortars um hmm. at that point 
the world changed for UAVs um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, we did what we had trained to do successfully. Two, we didn't kill any friendlies, right? So you're, you're, anytime you're doing something brand new, um, the worst thing that can happen is the first thing you do is kill friendlies, and then they go, oh, we shouldn't be doing this. Um, in fact, we're, we're saving friendlies' lives, right? Um, uh, and I, it was really interesting. Before my first A-10 brothers uh, and sisters, in fact, it was my old squadron, showed up in Afghanistan um, uh, in February of '02. Of I'd had a chance to work with every, every strike aircraft in the inventory. So, so 16s, 15Es, 18s, 14s. Uh, AC-130s, B-1s, B-52s, Mirages with the French and and um, uh, Tornados from the British. Uh, finding targets, fixing targets for them, generating nine lines, running a stack, keeping everybody safe, and then letting them rotate through with a JTAC to, to strike the target. And it was really, uh, it was really, you know, quite a rewarding experience, I, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I mean, listen... Uh... It, it, for those who are civilians listening who are, who are not familiar with this, I mean, this is, you know, information is everything in combat, right? And and what you're able to do is provide real-time, real data and information to folks on the ground uh, and essentially be an extra set of eyes for them. And that is a invaluable tool to have. Uh, so when you talk about the changes uh, subsequent to that first UAV mission that you were you were flying – how do things go forward? Do you start to see them ramp up more and, and sort of what are some of the after effects of those? Yeah. So, you know, we start to see, we still launch every night with a target set for, for the Intel guys, right. For the, for the J2 Bubba's, they're still looking for pre and post strike uh, target analysis. They're still looking uh, f- for some, for us to follow folks, to find some folks. Uh, but all, we start to do, support more and more troops in contact. And the other thing that happens, and this is maybe not a good part of Predator, right, is our video is being being real-time back to the to the Combined Air Operations Center, right, the CAOC. And so they're watching our video on the big screen on the wall real-time. Uh, and they can pick up the phone and call us. Now, we never let them call directly to the guy at the controls, but the other pilot, because we work at teams of two, two pilots, two sensor operators, and we'd swap into the seat every two hours on a, on an eight hour shift. Um, the other guy or gal would always intercept the phone calls, but ne- next thing you know, we're fielding phone calls from colonels and generals at the CAOC. Um, and if there's a fight going on or something really interesting going on, a TST going on, they want us there because they want to watch real time. Um, there's some goods in that because we ended up taking some shots at some folks and getting some, hitting some folks, that without that real-time intel, they would never would have made the TST call to pull the trigger, right? Uh, the bad in that is that all of a sudden this guy in um, down in Saudi Arabia and later on in, in um, Oman or wherever the CAC was sitting, um, all of a sudden he's got his fingers on on the execution end of the fight, right? And which is not how we fight, right? We we, we do we do not do a centralized control of a fight. We do decentralized. Um, I worked one night, we followed some cars for uh, about three or four hours. They parked in a village and they started pushing us six F-18s, two AC-130 gunships and four, uh, or two F-14s. We're like, holy cow, I don't know who we're following, but they must know something. Um, and if 18 show up, he wants to take on scene command, which is understandable. He's a trained fact. And the CAC won't let them. They 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 keep on the UAV. 
Um, when he has some problems with some weapons delivery, um, they, they direct that I send him home. And so I tell him, safe it up and go home. Um, and so he was supposed to shoot a Maverick missile at these cars. And I, I didn't pass that restriction because I thought it was quite frankly, a dumbass restriction. One bomb in the middle of all four cars takes it out. One Maverick maybe takes out one car. So I didn't pass the restriction. Well, he dropped a bomb just like I would have only, he had a fin failure on it. It was a guided bomb and it hit about a mile short. Um, and the general on the other end of the phone went ballistic with me and he's like, you tell him to save it up and go home. So I tell him to save it up and go home and he doesn't want to go. And I tell him, you know, the Kayak Direct, safe it up and go home. Uh, and uh, I couldn't I couldn't send him home to land on the ship, on the boat, um, to get in trouble, thinking he blew off direction from the Kayak. And so I told the Kayak, look, I never passed the second set of F-18s. I never passed them that weapons restriction. Um, the first set I passed to, they ran out of gas and they left. But I didn't pass it to the second. And the general just growls at me. We'll talk about this later, right? And I'm pretty sure at this point I'm losing my wings, you know. Uh, and the F4, the F-14s go, hey, uh, can the Kayak see your video? And we're like, yes. Can the Kayak hear our audio? We're like, no. And like, okay. So they want to know, they want to know who's in the grandstands, right? Well, I tell you what, um, when when the I worked in in ninety nine two thousand time frame, I worked with the F-14s as they're converting from Tomcats to what they called the Bombcat, right? They're going to mm-hmm. drop dropping bombs and they couldn't hit the broadside of bt11 out in north carolina you know but that night these guys uh two airplanes they laid waste to this town um and one of the buildings they hit it went up for the next three hours it kept exploding so i don't know what was in there but somebody knew what was in there and it was definitely an ammo dump and and they took out every target plus they were generating new targets and we were authenticating them and they they just absolutely mission success in fact they did so well that they sent the two AC-130 gunships away. They didn't need them anymore. Wow. Um, and and I wish I knew who those pilots were. I'd buy them a beer even to this day because I'm pretty sure they saved my wings because they did so well when it ended. The general uh, got me on the phone. He goes, if I tell you to do something, you, don't, you do it. Don't you ever fucking ignore me again. And he hangs up, and that was the last I heard. <laughs> I thought I was done, you know. I didn't know Air Force um, generals talk like that. They seem like such uh, nice, congenial fellas. <laughs> Yes, they all are, right? Yeah, right. Uh, um, let me so, ask you. So, well, you're doing this. You're, you are you are physically where where you're controlling these UAVs at this point? Physically in a trailer in Jacobabad, Pakistan. Okay, right. So I, so I just wanted to make sure. And the only reason I ask is because, you know, at some point you leave Jacobabad and you go back to a regular Air Force base in America and do the same thing, right? Right. So what we found out, uh, so, so as the, the world changed... So think about this. Today, and I could, I looked for numbers yesterday, the Air Force has somewhere between 65 to 90 orbits going at any one time. All Reapers today, right? No, no Predators. We had the ability at that time to do five. We had less than 20 airplanes total. Okay. Um, this was an experiment that got thrust into the front line of service, right? Um when things changed and we're doing more than just filming target decks, we're starting to be part of the troops in contact fight. And especially in this, you know, this environment of Afghanistan where it's very, it's all Indian land out there, right? It's mm-hmm. all bad guy land. Um, they just, they, they're like, we need more of these over there. Well, they had another trailer sitting in Kuwait. Um, they would image Iraq four or five times a week and they would go up and image things in the no fly zone, that kind of stuff. 
And they're like, well, how can we get another orbit up? Well, we just, we talked about it and we said, well, what if we take our airplane off? You can control these things through the satellite or on a direct line of sight link, like just like a, a remote control airplane, right? Or your, your little remote control car. Um, and that link always took priority over the satellites. And we could take one off. The guys in Kuwait, their satellite dish is inside the footprint of the satellite. They can fire it up. They can see it. We can confirm all the switches. And they can turn on their satellite link, and we'll turn off the UHF link, and they can fly it away. And then we'll take another one off. And now instead of having one airborne over Afghanistan, we got two. Um, well, then we started thinking about and it worked so well, you know, once in a while we'd have to put ours in a hold and land theirs if maybe it had uh, uh, a maintenance issue or fuel issue or something. But, you know, we planned it and it worked so well. We started thinking about it that the satellite dish is sitting about 50 yards away from the from the trailer and it's fiber optically linked. And the, the engineers told us it doesn't matter how long the fiber optic cable is. We're like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? They're like, it could run under the Atlantic Ocean for all we care. It doesn't matter. So you could put a satellite dish in Germany, an airplane in Afghanistan. That sits inside the same satellite footprint, and you could put your control trailer in the United States. As long as you got the saddle or the fiber optic cabling run to it, you could control the airplanes anywhere in the world from where you sit inside the States. I wanted to ask you that just because simply, do you lose any, and I guess excitement is not the right word, um, when you're doing this from Nevada, uh, and, and the actual bombs and bullets are, are, are on the other side of the world, does it lose any of its sort of appeal or luster or, I mean, does it seem, and this is what people are, average people are probably thinking, does it seem more like a video game from where you are than actual real combat? No, you know what? It's weird. Um, flying it, uh, you know, you would look. I would find myself, if I was going to turn the plane to the left, I'd find myself looking left as if I could look out a window, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, two, two, I flew them for three years. Even all the way to the end of the three years, I found myself doing that. Um, uh, and, you know, and we didn't, with the Predator, there are other UAVs that were flown differently. We didn't program it on a computer and let it go. We flew the thing the entire time. We would use an autopilot. It would hold the heading, altitude, and airspeed we told it to hold. Or we could turn all that off and fly it by hand. Um, and eventually when they armed them, or when we got the armed version, um, they armed them pre-9-11, which is an interesting, a whole different interesting concept. Um, you had to hand fly them when you shot the missiles off of them. You couldn't use the, you couldn't fly them via the um, the autopilot because you had to have, be in some pretty tight parameters, nose position in relationship to the laser in relationship to the missile. So you had to hand fly them even through the satellite, which was interesting as well, because there's a there's a two to three second delay between when you put an input on the stick and went up to the satellite down the airplane, the airplane did it, the video showing you it did it, went back up the satellite, back down to you across the fiber optic cable, which actually didn't induce any delay in it. Um, and, and then you saw it, it was about a two to three second delay. So it, it took a while, you had to learn to be pretty smooth, you actually had to be, I would say I had to be a, a more forward-thinking pilot in my Predator than I would necessarily have to be my A-10. Because if I put my A-10 into a corner, I could ro- roll it into nine degrees of bank, push the throttles all the way up and pull and get myself out of there, right? I couldn't do that with the Predator. And, and oops, I just flew it into Pakistan or I just flew it into Iran, right? And, and you know, you wouldn't want to do that and cause an international incident. So, And we worked a lot on the border of Pakistan and you had to stay out. Um, so the other thing that made it, it really surreal 
is you know you you deployed twice i believe to mm-hmm. to pay to, to Baghdad, iraq, yeah. or, or iraq um you know when you're coming home there's sort of steps to get you home right and i don't know if you're like me i, I later deployed to bagram and i deployed to Jacoba Bond and as you're coming home I, the steps you, you start to shed things right and I, I figure it's based on the safety features of the airplane I'm flying on right when I'm now having to store everything in the overhead bin or under the seat in front of me instead of wearing my body armor I'm starting to feel safer and safer and I'm starting to shed some of that stress uh, of combat missions some of that stress of sleeping on a uh, on the ground or on a cot and um, and border security by marines and um, and by the time I get home, you know, maybe I need to talk to someone about some of the things I've seen or done, but I've had this break, right. I've distanced myself. Um, I was flying one mission out, back in the States and we followed this car and the car pulled over out in the desert. Two guys got out. They walked about uh, 15 feet off the road. The one guy pulled out a gun and shot the other guy in the head. Whoa. And we're watching this all live on TV right now. It's, it's TV, but we're watching this live. You know, and um, and then about 30 minutes later, a guy came in, tapped me on the shoulder. I gave up the seat, and I went home. Went home to my wife. Went home to my kids. Had to change the oil in my car, right? Uh, you know, or that just or you seemed, take a- it seems so odd. Like I'm trying to process that mentally. I mean, you know, when I deployed, like at the end of the day, sort of the quote, you know, work day. You, you know, you, you go to the dining so you get some dinner. You go back to your room, you know, you, you take off your uniform, you put your pistol down, you you maybe throw on the TV, pop in a DVD, and just sort of sit there and stare at the walls until somebody entertains you or until you sleep and get up the next morning to do it all over again. Like, I, it's – but there's a mindset of, is a mortar going to land tonight? Uh, is somebody drag me out of bed for whatever reason? Is something going to happen? Like, you're sort of always on alert. Like, do you ever – are you not on alert in that scenario? Like, does your body not, you know – biophysically respond to combat the same way? Cause again, you're changing your oil when you went home. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I would tell you that my wife would t- say that at the end of my three years of predator, I was a zombie. The really? other thing is you're, you're working 24 seven, right? So we worked a one-to-one shift or a one-to-one shift, right? So, um, and we did that for, so that guys that didn't have family would still have time on either side of the shift to, to, to go to the bank or do laundry or, or go to the grocery store. Right. Um, and, and three years of that, and, and we didn't, I didn't have a set day off. I was supposed to work four on two off, but that would roll, you know, Hey Joe, will you trade with me? I got to have this day off for my kid. And so I'm now I'm working five on and two off and then three on one off, you know, and at the end of that and the stress, yeah, I was a zombie, you know, and the, the, the worst fear for me when I was flying UAVs, the worst fear is that I would get involved in something, um, driving home, proud of what I just did, wake up the next morning to read about a wedding party that just got blown up. Wow. That was my worst fear, right? Um, because we we stuck our nose in everywhere, um, in, in, in everywhere we went. The other one that was really strange, if you think about this one, um, is, is we ended up, we had two trailers, two orbits. Iraq kicks off. One of the planes moves over from, from Afghanistan to Iraq. And um, so... You know, you could be in one one trailer for two hours. The guy comes and relieves you. You step out. You take an hour break, and you step into the other trailer, and now you're flying in Iraq. <laughs> so, And the rules of engagement are just slightly different enough, right? You know, different command team you're talking to. And, and while that was at least one command team, one chaos, you could step out of one in Afghanistan 
an hour later step into another one in Korea. That's, you know, that's or, crazy. I, I mean, I guess. Yeah. I, I, and, and that mess that mess with your head. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, I, I, I'm more sort of just thinking of basically combat orientation. Like, I mean, when I'm driving through Baghdad, right, for the first time, you're essentially lost, right? I mean, you've never been there right. before. You know, you, you don't know anything about the lay of the land. And it's not like driving in America where there's a street name and there's easily identifiable, like, you know, terrain objects or things in, in that can orient you to where you're going to go. But after, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of, you know, iterations ago, you start to just recognize what everything looks like. So when you are looking at the ground in Afghanistan, then you walk across to a trailer in Iraq, how the hell do you know what you're looking at? Yeah, yeah. I tell you what. One of the things we we recognize that one of the things that we did do is only our instructors were allowed to jump, right, on the same shift. You might be in Afghanistan tonight and Iraq tomorrow, but if, if unless you were an instructor, you didn't switch back and forth um, because it was disoriented enough, you know. And the terrain's different, and yeah. The, and, and and your urban versus these hillsides, and yeah, it was uh, it messed with your head a little bit, um, and I and I think it still does to these days, you know. And a lot of people that well, you know, the predator, the UAV guys, they you know they're not at risk, they're not getting shot at, they're not. Man, you know, we learned some lessons in Kosovo. One of them was the whole communication. That was the impetus to get the radio work. And they they had two tanks in a tree line. Um, and they had two A-10s a thousand feet below them, and for an hour they tried to relay through the Kayak to AWACS to the A-10s where the tanks were, and they couldn't ever talk them on, right? And they were all right there. Uh, but the other one, they had one one day they watched the, the, the bad guys come into this town, go to this door. They yanked the door open. They pulled this family out, and they're like, oh, God, they're going to shoot them. And they put them in the car. They make a big show of strapping the kids in the car seat in the car. And they point, and the car starts driving down the road, and a tank comes around a corner and runs over the car. This is in Kosovo. And the guys, they are our guys, the Predator guys, this is right before I got to the unit. They're watching all this, right? And you think, wow, what a horrible accident. Now the tank pulls up to the house. The guys in the tank get out, and they're hugging the guys that put the family in the car. And if you don't think that that, you know, sends you home with some, with some issues just because you're not there and you're not at risk of taking a bullet, um, ending up like my friend, uh, uh, Casey Campbell, you know, and her shot up airplane, uh, just because you're not at risk, that stuff still messes with you. No. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I apologize if I came off that way. That it no, no, you, you. you don't, you got it. I, I've heard other people say that, you know, and I'd say to this day, we still have guys that are flying these things from all over our nation now at this point um, in combat, taking on ISIS when we were doing that, taking on uh, still working out of uh, Afghanistan. And, and man, they're still doing the Lord's work and, and the country's work. Um, and they, and they're going home every night to their family. So it's, it's just an issue. I think the air force has worked hard on it. No, they really I mean, have. that's the thing. It's, it's not, it's just different. One is not harder than the other. One is not better than it's just different. Um, and and yeah. they are different. And, and I do wonder about that because I, just me, you know, again, and you talk about some of the things you've seen and some of the things you, you see that go on like that, you know, obviously that would, that would rattle anybody. Um, you know, if you see somebody, you know, rip a family apart and, and, and put them in a vehicle and then run like, you know, that that's damaging no matter what. I'm just more talk. I'm thinking probably more linear in a sense of, sort of combat tactics because I, I I've been in those rooms and I've seen those guys operate those things. And I'm sitting here going in my head and this is the ignorant response, but it's like a video game to me. Like, it's just like, Oh, 
bad guys, take him out. Boom. You know, like there's no, for me, I I don't know if I, and then maybe I would feel different. I did it, but the emotional connection to it obviously is different. Like the, the, to me, it seems less personal, if that makes any sense. Not yeah, even, that's, not even. I'm sorry to cut you off, but not even because I'm not on the receiving end of gunfire, but it's just one of those things where it's like, there, there, there's no like, you know, the explosion is digital, right? Like there's no rumble. You don't feel it, right? There's no, yeah. a lot of the other sensory perception of combat isn't there, like if that makes sense. No, it does. It does. And and I tell you what, there was a lot of discussion early on, and I don't know where it's at in today's world about is it moral to use unmanned aerial, unmanned vehicles, period, what? to fight our fight. Is it moral? Right? Well, sure, because if you're not at risk, then is it a moral war, right? You know, it, it, it's well, not the two you, knights riding when, at each other. Yeah, right? I guess so. But the, the idea of a mortar sort of takes you out of harm's way. That's like the purpose of it. Right. Well, so, so, you know, the, the, the implication is there is that you could, you could, it becomes cheap, right? Okay. I I guess I get it, but that's just, to me, that sounds like somebody who's never been in combat talking. Yeah, I agree. Now I I tell you what, the the flip side, uh, the flip side of that coin, when I talk about watching the atrocities, um, you know, what we watched one village, um, for a, about a seven day period, um, 24 seven, we had an airplane on this village, right? Um, and, and so much so they would say, go to target three and we named them. Oh, that's the McDonald's. Oh, that's the bank. Right. And, uh, and we didn't go back on day, eight, um, to start. And then they sent us back. And as we come over the top of this village, the entire village is smoldering. They brought in, I don't know if it was a B 52 or a B one. I don't know how many JDAMs they put down on this village, but they leveled it and it's still smoldering and smoking and dusting. Right. Except for one building. They didn't touch. And it's the building that we always filmed the kids playing soccer in front of. And our government, our, our military said that that building's a no strike building because that's where the kids live. We watched this village for enough time to know the village's pattern. We knew where the kids lived and we avoided that building. Um, and, and so even when you're, you know, you're spending hours of boring work in the predator uh, and now in the reaper, um, you're still doing stuff that really had impacts that you just didn't realize that it had, you know, and uh, I was pretty proud on, on that mission too, to see that the one building we didn't blow up was where the kids lived. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes a lot more sense when you explain it. Honestly, it does. I mean, I, yeah. I the perspective is, is something that I obviously from never doing it, I don't have, but it, it makes a ton of sense um, as far as, you know, going through it. Um, and, and so how long does the actual, you know, war on terror combat experience lasts for you? So uh, it starts, it lasts from uh, November of 01 until I leave in uh, June-ish of 04. Now, I had a little break in there. Um, the uh, The company that builds the Predator also builds the Reaper, and they were done with the first four experimental airframes. And the squadron I was flying with, they said, you guys can have them. And so I went out to California for three months and we did a couple of things. Me and a guy, a great American named Joe Slepsky, we go out to California and for the first month they teach us to fly it. And we write all the, all the uh, courseware to train guys to cross flow from, from uh, predators to reapers. And then we spend about eight weeks with them, teaching them how to drop uh, laser guided bombs off of the airplane. Cause up till then we'd only ever fired hellfire missiles and, and the delivery of a missile versus a bomb, very different the software and what the software has to present and how you calculate it all very different. 
So my good friend Joe, we flipped for it. Uh, he won, and so he picked first bomb. So he got to be in the seat the first time a bomb came off of a UAV, um, and I got to be get the first flight. So I went down in, in record as the first Reaper pilot in the Air Force, which was kind of cool. Um, unfortunately, I left before I ever got to fly those in combat, but I got to spend a lot of time at China Lake figuring out how to tighten up and make it so that the a laser guided bomb would hit off of one of those things from 35, 40,000 feet. And uh, so other than that, uh, um, and a short period where I upgraded to instructor, so probably total of four or five months, that entire three years was war on terror, um, Afghanistan, Iraq. So um, the entire time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's wow. Man, I mean, did, did they at the time realize sort of the combat fatigue that you guys might have been subjected to? They did, um, but it didn't – I don't want to say it did matter, but it didn't matter. They did, and, and a lot of our senior leaders talked about it, And they, but at the same time, remember, so I said we had 20 – less than 24 airplanes, five orbits, right? Um, one of them was training back home, so four orbits we could put up in the two AORs. Uh, you know, by the time I left, I think they were upwards of 30. So they couldn't feed the fire fast enough. Um, to keep up with the growth, you know, every, every combat, uh, commander wanted these things overhead, right? Uh, the, the ability and the ability to, to do the time sensitive targeting on it really made huge, made a huge difference in that time sensitive target, right? Cause you could, you could clear, you could certify who you're striking is who you're striking. And it's not, hopefully not the, uh, the wedding party, right? It made a huge difference in that, and targets that would have got away didn't, didn't get away. But, yeah, they couldn't feed that fire fast enough. You know, we tried to go down to three shifts eight hours long instead of two shifts at 12, um, and we got there for uh, a couple months, and then we lost bodies to stand up new squadrons, and we had to go back to 12. So so there was some recognition. Uh, you know, my, that, my friend Joe Slavsky I told you about, he spent um, a solid two years working the 1 a.m. to the 1 p.m., shift because he didn't want to work the other one because he'd never see his kids right and so this guy was you know operating on four six hours of sleep and um you know but that's what he had to do to to live his life too so there was some recognition of the of the fatigue you bet is this your last combat experience no so um so i the good news is i was fortunate enough when i came into predator they promised me to return to A-10s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, base of choice. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I come out of Preds. The guys following me, uh, they got stuck. They, they never came out. They never went back to flying what they were flying before. So so my wife and I, I get sent off to, to intermediate service school, right? To, so uh, Air Command and Staff College, right? And um, my wife and I have a discussion. Of course, they want me to come back to the Predator world. I, I have a pretty long list of firsts in the Predator world, um, and they want me to come back to that. And we have a discussion. And my path, if I go that way, is probably pretty clearly set. You know, on the command and 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 senior ranks. And but I, you remember that love of flying. I, I told her, I said, as much as I considered it flying, as much as as it was a mission impact, I want to go back to my butt in the airplane. Um, and, and so I talked to my assignment guys and they said, fine, you went to school. So basic choice is gone, but we'll send you to Korea. But remember, that's how I got to UAVs to begin with. Remember? <laughs> so only this time they'll let me take my family. I'm a senior major. They'll let me take my family, 
Um, and so they're going to go with me for two years over to Korea to fly the A-10. Uh, I come out of school, I get promoted early to Lieutenant Colonel. Um, and because we pretty much figured I was done rank wise, I'd make Lieutenant Colonel, but I wouldn't command. Um, cause I, I'm not in the A-10 world. I'm just another guy. I wasn't even an instructor at this point. Right. Um, but now being promoted early, that makes me, uh, puts me on a leadership track and they got to kind of do something with me. So we, we stay in Korea for almost three years. And then I go to Moody Air Force Base uh, to fly A-10s again and rejoin the Flying Tigers, which is who I was flying them with uh, at Pope. They moved down to Moody. And in um, spring of 08, I deployed to Bagram back to Afghanistan with the squadron uh, that I was attached to. I was working up at the headquarters level as the director of safety, but I was attached to fly with the 74th Fighter Squadron, and we go back over to Bagram. Um, and that was a little weird, you know, they, the planes had changed, they had added a, a pod, they had put some TV screens inside the cockpit, and I find myself in a left-hand orbit around a target looking at a moving map of one screen and a, um, and a video picture on another and said, wow, this feels really familiar. Yeah. <laughs> only, only I can't get up and go to the bathroom and no one's going <laughs> to tap me on the shoulder for me to go eat dinner, right, you know? Yeah. Uh, and but, so uh, is there an actual combat experience for you? Yeah, you know, so um, I'm over there because I'm, I got to come back and take command of the support squadron. I'm over there 90 instead of 180 days. And I probably uh, flew about 40, 45 times. So I'd fly and then sit leadership desk and then fly. And I, I employed on about half my missions. So, you know, about 20, 25 times I got to either uh, drop bombs, shoot rockets, or shoot a, a whole hell of a lot of uh, 30 millimeter justice. Um, and, uh, I tell you what, uh, having been an A-10 guy now in my third assignment and, and there's just a different breed. I hope you find in the A-10 guys that they just value helping the guys on the ground, right? It's all about the guys on the ground. It's all about what can I do for them? Um, every time I got to, got to uh, blow up a, a machine gun emplacement or, or take out a, a wooden bunker or, or roll in and fire 30 millimeter on guys taking actual fire. I tell you what, that was some pretty rewarding stuff. And it is what I trained for and what I'd wanted to do going all the way back to when I came out of the Academy and I was finally getting a chance to do it. Does it feel any different than pushing the button in the trailer than it does when you're in the aircraft? Well, you know, so of all the engagements and all the stuff I worked on in UAVs, and I took out um, SA-2s, and I took out uh, uh, different uh, anti-aircraft stuff, I only ever got to shoot one missile. And a right end game, my sensor operator pulled the laser off, and we missed. We were shooting at a ZSU-23-4, and we missed. Um, that was the only time I ever actually got to employ a weapon uh, off of the Predator. Otherwise, I was controlling other guys doing it. Gotcha, okay. Um, in Afghanistan, uh, you know, the, the JTACs on the ground never gave the air guys control of authority to release. So now it was my turn to do the release. And I tell you what, the first the first weapon I dropped, it was through the weather, which is not something that's comfortable for an A-10 guy. We like to see what we're shooting at. But I got a GPS bomb on board. I'm allowed to do it. And they're taking machine gun fire. And as I'm turning in to come in on this target, I, I check the coordinates that the bomb's going where I want it to go, and it's not. And I checked the coordinates on my – I've written them down on my leg, and I check, and I check where the bomb's going, and they don't match. And I check the coordinates for the, the computer where I had entered the computer, and I titled the target, and they, they're correct, but where the bomb's going still doesn't match. 
and I, I'm getting ready to turn in about eight miles out now, and the bomb's not going where I want it. Um, and I look up, and the bomb's going to a target labeled FOB. And I'm like, oh, crap. And I toggle up one, and it's going now going to target one, right? And they all match. And, you know, and that FOB, that FOB was only about three kilometers away from where this bomb was going. I would never have noticed the difference over the top of the, the, the weather, right? Oh, man. Uh, so I'm checking five, six times now on the run, and I pickle that bomb off. I call countdown to splash two. Behind me pickles his bomb off. He calls countdown to splash. And the guy on the ground doesn't say a word to me. And finally, I ask him, where'd the bomb go? He goes, oh, those were perfect hits. And I'm just like, oh, I am, I'm sweating buckets at this point, right? Because I almost <laughs> put that thing on the freaking fob chow hall, you know? Uh, that would have killed me. Um, so, yeah, it's it, – but that's that same thing as going home from the UAV and waking up the next morning to find out that your big victory was a wedding party, right? It's It still comes down to the responsibility of the weapon, right? I, I don't know if – if in your world, uh, branch guys, if it's any different, if you're shooting the gun on a direct fire or you're lobbing that mortar over the hill, if you're hitting friendlies on the other side of the of what you're shooting, man, you, it, it leaves a bad, bad feeling in you, right? No, oh, absolutely. So, but I tell you what, no, I, I enjoyed getting to finally do what I trained to do. And I got, you know, when you shoot the 30 millimeter in the A-10, there's no better experience in the world. Than that. The whole airplane shakes. The whole cockpit fills up with cordite smell right? Like you've been on the range. It's just awesome. Um, and when you're doing it and then they stop shooting at our guys on the ground, um, that's pretty cool. You know, the, they would call in for shows of force sometimes. Um, and, and the, and the 16s and the 15s and the 18s, they drop down to about a hundred feet and they come over the top of the crowds that they wanted to scatter at full afterburner, 500 plus miles an hour. And just this thunderous, this thunderous sound and the crowds would scatter. Right. The A-10s would come over and the crowds would look up. <laughs> they wouldn't scatter. But if we then pulled up and went out to about two miles and turned around and put our nose on them, they ran at that point. Wow. Because uh, they knew. Um, and, and we weren't going to shoot. We weren't cleared to shoot. It didn't matter. As soon as our nose, nose pointed at the, the bad guys, they just ran. Uh, and that, again, is a pretty cool sense um, in that, that it's all about the guy on the ground. Um, it's not about the glory of the guy in the air. Right. And this goes all the way back to where did I learn that? I learned that in C 130s in Alaska. Right. It's all about supporting those guys on the ground um, and not being the full of myself fighter pilot. How macho am I? Um, and, and I really enjoyed that deployment for sure. Now, you ended up back at the Air Force Academy as a, uh, as a commander there in, in front of a training group, correct? Correct. Yeah. So the, uh, I ended up uh, the 306 flying training group, which was all the flying an airmanship done at the academy. So there was the glider program, there was the free fall jump program, and there was the um, the power flight uh, screening program, which wasn't screening. It was introduction to power flight, you know, 10 or 12 rides in a powered airplane. Uh, so I had all that, including the airfield. And then, interestingly enough, I'm at the academy. I'm the commander of all the flying for the academy, but my chain of command is not through the academy. It's through the, uh, the training command out of uh, Randolph. Air Force Base in San Antonio. So I also then supervised the all the flight screening for the Air Force in Pueblo, Colorado um, at the time. Uh, I had that, and that had nothing to do with the academy. That was uh, an actual training command um, mission there. Any, any reward uh, personally to go back to the place where you got your start and, and sort of mold, or young, mold younger Air Force cadets? 
Yeah, I tell you what, um, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, I'm going to answer that two ways. First of all, just being back in my alma mater was surreal, you know, Uh, and then being even though even though I'm not the not assigned to the chain of command of the three star at the academy, I work for him. Right. Let's not be. You know, we've all had that where you're you're really in this group, but you're working for this commander. And I, I'm one of his six top advisors. And I'm like, how did I get here? I felt like the little kid in the giant rocking chair, right? You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm a baby colonel, you know, and how did I get here? Um, and so that was really fun. And, and it was a fun assignment. You know, the football games, the cadets. I tell you what, anytime people in our country start to doubt the future of our country, just go to a program like West Point or Annapolis or Colorado Springs Air Force Academy and talk to some of these young men and women who have volunteered to serve their country, and you will be so impressed um, that you will start to relax about the future of our country because we got, we got quality folks in these institutions in these that just – they're bound for major leadership, and they're amazing. They're amazing young men, men and women. I'll tell you let – me, let me tell you this story. Uh, probably the most rewarding thing in my Air Force career happened while I was there. Um, so I go down to Pueblo. It's flight screening, right? So you're starting day one. This is your path to becoming a pilot in the United States Air Force. Really, any a- anything in the air. Because uh, our EWOs, our, our, our weapons system operators, the guys that sit sideways or in the back seats, they go through these programs too. Uh, our UAV operators go through this program. And, and this – I. I'm the senior guy. So I felt like this is such a momentum occasion for these young lieutenants that somebody needs to greet them. So I went to every single start about every six weeks and, and I had a set speech, you know, welcome and you better work hard because it's for real and there's no second chances, blah, blah, blah. I finished one day and as I'm walking out, this older lieutenant stops me and he goes, hey, Colonel Rosito, and I turn and he goes, do you remember me? And I'm like, I am so sorry, but I don't. And he said, when you were the OSS commander at Moody, I was an air traffic controller in your squadron. And I came to your office one day with the chief. And I told you I wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force. And you laid out a plan for me. And you told me the steps I needed to do to go get it. And um, and you changed my life. And I said, well, here you are. Where are you going? He said, I'm going to Shepard in eight weeks to Euronado. And, and hopefully I can fly an A-10. And I'm like, he's like, I just wanted to thank you. And, and, you know, I walked away from that and I don't care everything else that I ever did. Um, and you know, you've commanded, um, when you get, you find out you've touched somebody's life like that in the ripples that has, there's the reward right there. Uh, after that, I was like, whatever, <laughs> the rest is gravy, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that, that is incredibly, and I mean, incredibly rewarding. More so just because you get to make that connection, right? Like you, you know you had an impact on somebody's life. Uh, and, and in our line of work, if you can, can do that, if, if you can have a positive impact on somebody's life, then clearly uh, your mark as a leader has, has sort of been stamped, right? Uh, it, yes. And it's, it's, you're a biblical guy, as you said. It's just, you know, if you save one of the sheep instead of the flock, you're okay. That. Yeah, you bet. And I tell you what, to me, the, the, my favorite level of leadership was the lieutenant colonel level, right? Because I still got to get down and work with the airmen, right? And the young lieutenants. You know, I make, make 06 colonel, and, and that's not my job anymore, right? I'm working with the lieutenant colonels. And um, uh, it, first of all, it's harder. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and second of all, it, 
I didn't find it nearly as rewarding, right? Because, because, um, I'm no longer working with the sheep direct. Right. And, uh, those guys, the amazing young men and women in our military, and I hear them on your podcast all the time and I'm just blown away by the things they do. So how did you know it was time to hang it up or the air force said, thank you for your service. Have a nice rest of your life. No. So I ended up working at the profession of Armed center of excellence. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and we, our job there was to go around and to try answering directly to the chief of staff of the air force to try and break down barriers that are keeping our core values separated from our mission. Right. Um, and we did, we, we said the way to do that is through professionalism. Right. Uh, you know, and you could, you could know there's barriers when you hear things like, you know, just pencil whip the paperwork. Right. Or, or, uh, we do it that way. Cause that's the way we've always done it. Right. Or, um, you know, we would say fly what you can, log what you need in the Air Force, right? Meaning just put down on paper, you know, do what you can, but put down on paper what you need to get it done, you know. And and you and I've read some stories in the Army side where where these commanders were writing down that they're meeting all these training requirements that in a calendar year they couldn't meet, right? And so some of it's gone on there, I know. And so anyway, I'm in this job and we're traveling the Air Force teaching uh, about professionalism and, and connecting our core values in a better way of leadership. And it just, you know, it was time. It's actually, it was at, I was at the academy. Um, I didn't have a joint job. Uh, and so um, couldn't be a, a general officer. And if I wasn't going to be a general officer, they weren't going to make me a wing commander. Um, and my boss wanted me to go overseas for a year to get my joint job and then come back and be a wing commander. And, you know, my son was 14 at that point, And I'm going to be away from him for a year back to a job where I'm going to work 12-hour days, six days a week. And he's going to be 17 and I'm going to look up and wife's going to have passed me by. And my wife and I just said, it's time. And then when I, the day I finally put my paperwork in, my boss said, well, you know, stick around. And I'm like, no, it's time boss. And, and I said, I'm coming up on an assignment. He's like, well, I'll freeze you. I'm like, well, you can't freeze me from, from a rotation overseas. It's my time. And I said, here's the thing. Uh, service before self is one of our core values and I'm no longer willing to put the service before myself. It's time for me to put my family and myself first. That means it's probably just time for me to go. Um, and you know what? 25 years active duty plus four at the Academy. It's enough. You know, it's, it's okay. It's, it's just time. And he, he said, okay. And, uh, and I did another year and then retired and I miss it. I miss it every day. So. Wow. I mean, amazing, you know, uh, 20 plus years. Uh, it's hard to kind of, encapsulated in a few words, but, uh, you know, you look back on your career, uh, no regrets, I assume, right? No, you know, there, there were, there's tactical regrets, right? Where I wish I'd handled that situation better. or I wish I'd done better with this, but no, no regrets from, from, uh, you know, God's hand and going up to Alaska to meet my wife, to, to God's hand and put me in a UAV with, that I didn't want to be in that uh, led to really my early promotion and, and a rank of Colonel that I, I probably wouldn't achieved otherwise. You know, he, he put me where he needed me and where I needed to be. Uh, and so no regrets on the, the whole, even finishing the school. I finished the, the center I finished at, you know, um, I would teach courses anywhere from 10 to 800 people. Right. Uh, and I tell you the most intimidating was the class of 10, spouses commander spouses they were the most intimidating because <laughs> they could ask anything they they come from way off the wall you know and about leadership and and how to lead and how to lead volunteers you know mm -hmm. uh but i t you know it was i had a blessed career i 
the my first non-flying job in the Air Force, as long as you count flying in Predators, was at the 21-year point, 22-year point. Um, and and I got to command twice in Mako 6. There are guys that, you know, they'll tell you, they'll, they'll gladly retire as a major if they just never have to leave the cockpit and stop flying. So, you know, uh, I, I had an amazing career. There's absolutely zero regrets. Now, we mentioned earlier your son nominated you uh, for this or reached out to us to put you on. Uh, what did you tell him about your military career? What does he know? Is, is he going to hear anything here that he hasn't heard before? No, he's heard all this before. Uh, <laughs> he may call you back and tell you half of that was lies, 10% rule, right? So the storyline needs to be 10% true. No, I'm just kidding, man. Everything I told you is 100% true. Uh, yeah, he, you know, he's very proud of me. Um, uh, and I'm extremely proud of him. He he talked about going down, down the road of uh, uh, service, military service, um, at one point he wanted to be a crow, right? Which is the officers over the top of the PJs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, and, you know, and he looked into it, he, he did some, some exploratory programs, civil air patrol has one on that. And he just decided it wasn't for him. And I got to tell you, it was one of the hardest things as a father, cause I knew all along it wasn't a fit for him. Um, but I did, wasn't going to tell him, you know, you're not going to make it or, or you, you know, um, or that's not a fit for you. Um, and it was just hard and I had to let him come to that decision on his own. Right. And, um, but now I, I'm just really proud of him. He's, he's chosen, he wants to, he wants to run, um, the leadership route. He wants to run Christian youth camp. That's what he wants to do for a career. And I couldn't be prouder, you know, to, to watch him pick, um, the ministry to go into basically as a youth camp director. Um, to me, that's just amazing. Um, really proud of him for that. No, absolutely. And, and again, thank him for us. Uh, you know, it's a great, it's a great story. I mean, honestly, I, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. You know, when, when I do research on some of the, the, the guests that, that come on, um, and, and granted we have more in-depth research for, for some guests than others, just based off of what they've done in their career, you know, but you gloss over your assignments and nothing like, you know, uh, prior to us recording, you mentioned that you said, I hope it wasn't too boring, but I'm like, no, every story is unique and, and they're all great, but nothing jumped out at me. But when I hear you talk about it, you know, there's so much here, man. Like there is, there is a lot of, of really amazing things that you accomplished in, in 20 plus years uh, in the Air Force. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, we didn't even talk leadership, no, which, is, uh, <laughs> which is one of my favorite topics to talk about. You know, we didn't even talk about, you know, my last two years uh, teaching a different style of leadership, leadership of, of trust, right, as opposed to the leadership of power. Right? You know, um, I love Colin Powell's video, but he, I think he's at a White House press conference and the gal asked him, um, you know, what's the key to leadership? And he says, trust, right? Trust. Um, and he, and he tells the story as a Lieutenant when he says, when they follow you just to see what you're going to do, uh, you know, you're a leader. Uh, it's amazing, amazing, uh, video from, from secretary Powell. And, um, and that's the kind of leadership I wish our military uses. And as unfortunately, you know, as we both seen it, it's more about, I'm the Colonel and you're not. So do what I said. Uh, we see more often than not. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and we can see it today and multiple stories of, of, you know, generals and colonels, you know, being relieved of command for inappropriate behaviors. Um, again, this is what we, you know, spent, you know, my last two years teaching and we could, we could have another hour of conversation well, about that. It, it, it goes, it, it goes back to the simple premise that you, you talk about, uh, you know, when you say it's about the guys on the ground, right? It's not about the glory of the pilot. Well, uh, when you the higher you get up in leadership, it's about those you choose to lead, not what you accomplish, and and not 
what you uh, get notoriety for or, you know, what you have to do. It's, it's, it's about the people that you're leading. Uh, and, and if they're not first, then, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I used to tell guys, uh, you know, that I was mentoring, I'm like, when you get to leadership, if you think those people are there to serve you, you got it backwards. You're there to serve them. Your job exists because of them. Their job doesn't exist because of you. Um, and if you get it backwards, time for you to go. Uh, if you think you're here to, here to be served time for you to go, your job is to serve, um, and to serve everybody below you. So, well, Again, uh, hours and hours and hours we could do on leadership, but I certainly thank you uh, for the time you've given us uh, to, to tell us your story and uh, what an excellent one it was. Uh, and frankly, again, I learned a lot. Uh, it's weird. We don't get that many Air Force folks um, for whatever reason. Uh, we, we haven't had enough uh, Air Force representation on the podcast, so I'm always ha- happy when we do. Now, in fairness, we get the, the, the PJs and we get some of the combat controller guys, you know, uh, the, the, the high profile stuff, but... Uh, you know, the average Air Force officer or or airman, you know, doesn't always uh, doesn't always come across uh, on our podcast. But it was great to finally get uh, get that story and and learned a lot about the Air Force and, and things that you can do. So I appreciate it. Colonel Joseph Azuto, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.